Um, who here all is familiar with the 1989 uh, Disney animated film, The Little Mermaid? Okay. See, I ask because I prepared two openings for us this morning. One, if we were familiar with that story, um, and then the other, if we weren't or weren't going to admit to it in public. But it sounds like we are, so I'm going to go with that one, um, which is good because the second opening wasn't as well developed, um, and I was going to quote really pretentiously from uh, Dante's Divine Comedy, and you were all going to not like me, and so we're going to get to avoid that. Uh, so that's good. So, option one, The Little Mermaid. Let's run with that. Um, you've also just voted to have a grown man talk about The Little Mermaid, so now we know you're that kind of church. Good to know. Um, so, perspective. Uh, perspective matters. When we, when we tell a story, or when we think about a story, how we judge the details of that story is powerfully influenced by what the situation and circumstances guide us to be our point of reference. And, and by that I mean, uh, when, when a story starts, you learn pretty quickly who the main character is. The, the, the story, whether it's a movie, whether it's fiction, draws you to say, focus on this character, invest in this character, empathize, <laughs> empathize with this character. Uh, that, this is whose movie this is. Your affections should rest with this person's struggles, not, say, this person's or that person's. So, in the case of that great classic, Disney's Little Mermaid, you watch it, and as it begins, we see the title character, the Little Mermaid, Ariel, um, wishing for more. Now, looking to that metaphorical uh, horizon for something to evoke a sense of wonder that's missing from her life. Um, and so we're, we're, we're kind of drawn into that. We, we catch a little bit of that wanderlust. That, as, as viewers, we, we recognize and identify with that struggle because that's how the story is presented and told to us. And so, you know, we're, we're sh shocked along with her when, uh, you know, her, her dad blows his top and nukes all of her stuff that she got from the surface world, and it's sad and it's intense and, and all of these things, you know. Your dad blows up all your uh, other world artifacts with his magical trident, typical teenager problem stuff. We've all been there. Um, but perspective. What if this were King Triton's movie? What if it was his big dopey face uh, on the cover of that giant plastic VHS case that all those movies came in in the 90s? Um, what if we opened the story with him, the story of a, a single dad trying to raise like seven daughters all on his own while running a kingdom and drama, he's losing one of them. One of them is drawing away. One of them is disappearing from her own life. What if the story opens and there's this giant social event that's a big deal and there's a concert she's committed to and she doesn't show up, she just disappears. And he's like, she's dead, she's dead in a ditch and she's dead there. And he goes looking for her and he finds her and she's holed up in this dirty cave full of garbage that has no purpose and does nothing, that she doesn't even know what it is. She's, she's opted out of her life to spend time with her spoon collection and that's what hoarders do. Ariel has a mental illness. And, and, and so King Triton is, is shocked. He doesn't know what to do. He's relieved she's alive. He's 
angry that she's made him worry for no good reason whatsoever. And he's terrified because he's not a psychiatrist. He doesn't know what to do about this. So he does the only thing he can think of. He blows up the stuff that he blames. He, he destroys symbolically those, those objects that are the physical manifestation of his daughter's desire to abandon him. It's ironic, it's tragic, because by doing so, he even drives her further away. So suddenly, our animated musical romp becomes a tragedy just by changing whose movie it is. So, the question becomes a different story emerges when we ask, whose movie is this? Where will we rest our affections in the struggle of this story? So we're in Exodus chapter 11 today. Um, we ended in Exodus chapter 10 last week, so that should have been our first clue. Um, the showdown in Egypt between Moses and Pharaoh has come to its tipping point. Nine of the plagues have descended and been lifted by the finger of God. Moses is, is right where we left him last week. He's standing in the throne room of Pharaoh. Pharaoh has just issued a death threat. If I ever see your face again, you're a dead man. And that's where our story opens. Negotiations are over. Uh, the diplomatic approach has been closed. And so our scene continues from that moment. Exodus 11, let's read together. And the Lord said to Moses, Yet one more plague will I bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask, every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. But a not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. And the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. Let's pray real quick. God, thank you for this word. Uh, guide our hearts, guide our ears. Guide the words of your servants. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is the calm before the storm. Yet one plague more will I bring on the land of Egypt, God says. And what a plague it will be, such that a great cry will go up from the land of Egypt that had never been heard before and never would be again to this very day. The death of every firstborn. And, and for many people, including believers, I'm not exempting um, us from this, when we read this story, there's, there's a cry that rises up in us as well, even if we, we don't give voice to it, uh, a cry of, of protest. We protest the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. We're like, really? Is that fair, God? Uh, that's, a, that's a subject that's been 
coming up, sneaking up on us as we've read this story, and, and I haven't directly engaged it, but, but here in this, this silence before the tenth plague, there's, there's really no other place um, to avoid talking about it. Um, we, we protest the harshness of the judgment itself. Again, even if we don't give voice to it, there's something in us that says, this is a hard story. Just like David was talking about Matthew 20, this is a hard teaching. Um, the Bible's full of those. There are two threads that run through this passage. There's, there's two things that are really happening, two intertwined realities that serve as the core movers of what we see here. Uh, yet one more plague is coming. A plague that will be characterized by these two things, God's righteous judgment and his gracious distinction. As, as we study this passage, my, my, my intent, my hope, is that you will come to see that these are not warring factions within the psyche of a schizophrenic God. That both his justice and his mercy are, are two sides to the same coin of his love for us and that both are absolutely essential to his saving purposes. I, I hope, in short, that you will come to see that as believers, we are called to bow to both the judgment and to the mercy of God, because without either, we remain enslaved and unsaved. So how is this so? If, if, that's, the, if that's our premise, if that's what we want to prove, we, we're called as believers to bow to the mercy and the judgment of God, because without both, we remain unsaved. <coughs> How is this so? So we look at these two threads, this coin, righteous judgment and gracious distinction. And as we work through this passage, um, I, I want to share three things I've observed, three significant ways that these two elements interact with one another and act upon the world. So where do we see it? The, the, first, the first significant way I think these two sides interact with each other is this. Both the righteous judgment and the distinction of God together turn the world upside down. These two things working in concert both completely turn the world upside down. What do I mean by that and where do we see it? So the world has a certain status quo. Um, people are pretty orderly. Even, even the messy ones, they're consistently messy. Um, we, we have a business as usual. The particulars of business as usual for society can vary time to time, place to place, culture to culture. Um, it's, it's not the details that matter. It's just that that's how we work. Um, we create a normal, a structure, uh, something that is normal for our culture at our time. Uh, we're up here. Slaves are down there. Um, you're in charge. You're not, and you know why. Um, you know, this is worth a penny, that's worth a pound. Normal. And whatever is normal f for us will, by and large, relate, reveal, or be based off of the values of the people that rendered it normal by assuming it and saying, hey, this is what we're going to do because this is what I like. And, and so I, I say all that to say this, the righteous judgment and gracious distinction of God turn the world upside down. Why? Well, why would the values, the preferences, the inclinations, the habits, the business as usual of kind of lazy, sinful, selfish people ever fully, perfectly, completely reflect the values of God? It, it just wouldn't happen. We're not going to trip into living according to God's moral character. So at, at some point, somewhere, our values, our wants, our normal is going to be humming along, doing its thing. Our culture is going to be okay. We're, we're running. We're doing this. And 
at some point, God's going to show up and kick over that apple cart with either his justice or his mercy. Moses uh, returned to Egypt in exile, arguably neither Egyptian nor Israelite in a lot of people's eyes. He had thrown in completely with God's people. I think that was sort of the, the takeaway of chapters 4 and 5. But, but, but he, he wasn't in a socially advantageous position, let's just say. And then, of course, the Israelites themselves are slaves, along with all that entails. Uh, if you remember Exodus chapter 1, they, they made their lives bitter in hard service with mortar and brick. This is the lowest of the low. And then we contrast this with Egypt at this point in life. Um, historically speaking, Egypt was at one of its highest points. They weren't just doing well for Egypt. They were doing the best by the standards of the ancient world at the time. They were the superpower. They were living large. And then, you know, Pharaoh's at the top of the top of the top of the pile. Um, and so we have this, this massive gap between these two groups of people, Moses and his rabble of slaves on one hand, and then the greatest power that the ancient world had known up to that point on the other, and God's judgment and mercy come along and completely turns that equation upside down. And we see that in this chapter. The finger of God comes in power, the plagues descend on Egypt, and we see in his righteous judgment and in his gracious distinction exempting the Israelites from that judgment, the status quo changes. God kicks over Egypt's apple cart. We start to see the effects of what we were reading about last week now. Um, verse 3, for example, uh, and the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. The slave masters are suddenly, instead of looking down at their slaves, they're looking up at their slaves. When does that happen? Why does that happen? The, the court of Pharaoh is looking up to Moses. Pharaoh's not the biggest deal in Egypt, not anymore. Not right now. And, and so, I mean, just... Again, in terms of story, put yourself in Joe Egyptian sandals for a minute. Uh, you're, you're going along, you've got your slaves, which is great because, you know, digging your own ditches just sucks. Um, and then one day the whole world goes crazy. The, the river turns to blood and you're digging holes in the sand so you have water to drink for a whole week. And then you're tying a rag over your nose as the dead rotting frog corpse piles are starting to stink, and then there's gnats, and then there's flies, and then suddenly in the midst of this you notice none of this is touching your slaves. None of this is happening where they live. And then one day you hear warning fry, word of mouth, overhearing Moses, you know, yelling at Pharaoh from at the river, a hail is coming, and anyone who wants to survive gets undercover, and you get undercover with your animals and you slaves, and you watch as everyone else around you dies, and that changes how you look at those slaves you're suddenly under the shelter with. Who am I dealing with? What is going on here? God is turning the world upside down. Everything's being reversed. Pharaoh's protection, Pharaoh's power, the strength of his armies, they don't matter anymore, at least for, for this, this terrifying period of time in Egypt. Honor and prestige and power don't matter anymore. Normal is the slave master keeping his slaves and them just dealing with it. Uh, and the message of God through Moses is that there is yet one more plague, and afterward, not only will Pharaoh let them go, he will drive them out. Not only will it be like, fine, I'll let you go, but he'll be saying, go, leave, get out of here, please, quickly. Um, and, and, and that's, not only will he not keep them, uh, in verse 8, Moses essentially says, oh, I'll leave on the day when your servants come and bow to me and ask me nicely. 
Um, that's the sassy Moses translation. Um, but <laughs> normal is the slave getting nothing and liking it. Um, the message of God through Moses was that the Israelites would ask for wealth from the Egyptians and receive it. The slaves would leave with the wages of workers. Israel wasn't going to sneak out the window at night while the Egyptians were sleeping. They were going to walk out the front door in broad daylight and they were going to do it with severance pay. That's not normal, but that's God's justice and his mercy changing the institutions of the world. And all this because of God's righteous judgment and distinction. People's worlds are turned upside down. The comfortable are afflicted. They, the afflicted are made comfortable and comforted. The last become first and the first the last. God in mercy and in judgment comes to the world's values and priorities and social structures and inevitably upsets them. And depending on where we stand, depending on where a given person stands, where their affections lie, depending on whose movie we're watching, this will either be extremely annoying or extremely comforting to us. It may be the core of our hallelujah or be offensive to us down to our deepest core. But regardless of, of what we feel or how we respond, and we'll talk more about that later, regardless, God's action changes things. We might want things to stay the same. We might want them to reorder the, the pile a little bit, but still essentially keep the same structure. We might want to burn it all down and start over. It, it honestly doesn't matter where we're standing because ultimately God will come righteously judging and graciously making distinction, and it won't be our personal vision for a better world that will be affected. It'll be God's. And if we're as addicted to sin and selfishness as the Bible indicates, and I think it's onto something there, um, why would it? Why would the world look like anything we envision for ourselves? There's a, there's a humility that is called for when we're confronted by God's reordering of the world. As we see in Exodus, uh, both sides of this coin, both of these elements are necessary parts of this reordering. It is in and through the exemption of the Israelites from the plagues that this great reversal takes place. The righteous judgment and the disgracious distinction of God together turn the world upside down. If it's just the one, it's just bad things happening. If it's just the other, it doesn't make a difference. Here's the, so here's the second significant way in our passage that we see these two sides interacting. The righteous judgment of God is universal. The gracious distinction is particular. What do I mean by that? Now, if there are any theology nerds in the room or, you know, listening by our totally awesome uh, podcast, um, I'm not using those terms super technically, so don't read too much into it. Um, but, but the righteous judgment is universal. The gracious distinction is particular. And by that, I just mean the 10th plague is coming over all the firstborn of Egypt, it's coming. And the judgment won't be something that people opt into. It won't be something that they qualify for if they, they cross a certain line of badness or end up on Santa's naughty list. It's just coming, and everybody's name is on the list by default. Uh, in verse 4 and 5, it says, So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who's behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. From top to bottom, from, from the crown prince to the son of the slave girl who's still up at midnight and working because that's her life, down to the animals themselves. Death and judgment are no respecters of persons. 
Now, once again, the values of the world are still being overturned even as this happens. Wealth doesn't matter. Age doesn't matter. Gender doesn't matter. Just the deplorable and non-existent state of one's own righteousness before the unspeakable holiness of God. And, and this might sound intolerably unfair to our ears, but it shouldn't. Disobedience always leads to death. We learn that two chapters into the Bible. Um, it's not a well-kept secret. Um, and, and I hope, as was demonstrated last week, both Israel and Egypt stood in, in positions that were morally indistinguishable one from the other, and, and both were morally indefensible before the righteousness of God. The judgment is universal because it's universally warranted. That part's pretty straightforward. There are no good guys, uh, then or now. And, and even in this from God, we see um, in it a, an unsolicited and undeserved restraint. Um, it's not everybody that he demands satisfaction from. It's a, it's a substitutionary uh, stand-in, a representative of each household, its firstborn. And that one will be appointed to pay for the crimes of the rest. This is much more than fair. Um, what might be less defensible, what might be less fair, is the fact that he decides to spare Israel. The gracious, gracious distinction is particular. Uh, verse 8, but not a dog shall growl against, growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes distinction between Egypt and Israel. Righteous judgment is coming to all the high and the low, but not even a dog will growl against those with whom God makes a distinction. That's what this verse is telling us. Next week, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about how that distinction is made um, and, and, and at what cost. But here God announces to, to everyone who is of my people, to everyone I claim is my own who receive my mercy, uh, when death pours through the streets, not a hair on your head will be touched. That's what he's saying. Judgment is the default and gracious distinction is made by God in particular circumstance. And many of us are, are quick to get mad about or just be troubled by God's judgment on Egypt. Yeah, I get that about whether poor defenseless genocidal dictator Pharaoh ever really had a chance. Um, and in so doing, we, we forget to be mad that God just pardoned a bunch of cowardly, infant-murdering, feckless idolaters in the person of the people of Israel. We, we forget to be troubled that he just extended mercy to the taskmasters that participated and upheld the enslavement of their own people. We, we forget to be upset that he just extended mercy to the, the, the turncoats and the cowards who saw the miracles Moses performed and cheered when he showed up and then turned their backs on him when Pharaoh started to twist the screws a little bit. fair is our standard, we shouldn't be mad about judgment, but we should be infuriated by grace. Why don't they have to pay for what they've done? Why don't all the Egyptians, not just a representative firstborn, why doesn't Pharaoh, I don't know if you know this, but Pharaoh survives this story. He doesn't die. This guy who the whole book we've kind of been picturing is going to Hans Gruber off the edge of a, edge of a pyramid um, at the, the, the climax of Act 3. Kevin's seen the movie. <laughs> um, he lives. Our affections, our, our mo whose movie this is, determines for us whether this story of Exodus is an epic or a tragedy. There's judgment. Is it too much? Is God unfair? There's grace. Is it too much? Is God unfair? Pick your seat. It doesn't matter. Most likely God is kicking you out of it. 
making you uncomfortable, rising up that great cry of protest in your heart somewhere, even if you don't give it voice. But whether we like it or not, however it grates on our sense of fair, we're left by this story with this observation, the righteous judgment of God is universal and his gracious distinction is particular. The third way that we see these threads both interacting and acting is in their results, is in the fact that it is by both and only by both the righteous judgment and the gracious distinction of God that the people of Israel are saved. One or the other wouldn't do it. And, and to some extent, this is just straightforward reasoning. There's, there's not a lot of uh, complicated um, interpretation here. Um, God makes a gracious distinction. He says, I set my love and mercy on the people of Israel. But if that's all, if he follows that up by then saying, but I'm not going to do anything about it. I'm not going to act for them. I'm not going to stop the people hurting them. I'm not going to judge the evil done to them. And then there might be an emotional difference for the people of Israel. Yay, God loves us. He's on our side. Um, but never, if it never translates into action, if there's no teeth in the lion's roar, if the sword is never unsheathed, then it amounts to nothing and the people remain unsaved. And if there's judgment without distinction, then God still acts rightly. He, he would be answering the call to, to vindicate and avenge the spilled blood crying out from our sin-soaked earth. He would be putting an end to the ongoing offense toward his own righteousness and perfect sense of justice. Death would fall on all of Egypt and death would fall on all of Israel. And they would mourn and Egypt would mourn and everyone would be sad at the terrible random bad thing that just happened and then life would go on as normal and the people would remain unsaved. But because their world has been turned upside down by the righteous judgment and the gracious distinction happening together, because the Egyptians can see that this universal judgment has a line of distinction drawn in it around Israel, because of the pain and because of the mercy, they can see this at least in part for what it is, and the people will be let go. Verse 1 and 8 both make this point. When this happens, when this plague falls and the great cry rises up, then they will let you go. And after the righteous judgment and the gracious distinction, then will you be saved? And they are. They will be. Um, we, we still have two more weeks to go as we race towards the thrilling, chilling conclusion of our Exodus series. Um, but God has spoken, and, and, and we can bank on that, that this is what will save the people, the judgment and the distinction together. That's the story of Exodus 11. The, the question then becomes, how is it our story? What was, what was God doing here, and how can we best understand it from our vantage point in salvation history? As I, as I said earlier, for many, for most, at some level, I suspect, for all of us, this passage confronts us. It offends us. It draws us out to cry to God in protest, either against his judgment or his mercy or both. As, as believers, we're called to bow to the judgment and to the mercy of God, but far too often, based off whatever the present circumstance or situation is and, and where our affections stand in that situation, we don't always want God to be just or we don't always want him to be merciful. We don't want to bow. When, when people are enslaved or when someone commits a crime so horrific that we want to symbolically revoke their humanity and label them a monster, then we want God to be just. 
when our employers lie to us and change the deal partway through because, hey, HR's got 40 resumes on their desk that can all do what you do. We want God to be just. And when we fail and when we fall and when through malice or tiredness or laziness or incompetence let our families down, let our communities down, then we want God to be merciful. When, when people we love are lost or have refused reconciliation to God through Christ and we care for them greatly, then we want God to be very, very, very merciful. We want the keys to the gates of hell and we want to send in and let loose as our wisdom sees fit. We want to be God. We want to do his job. We, want, we don't think he's doing it right. We don't trust him. We're not sure he's going to be fair. We want to hold those keys ourselves. This is not a terribly original idea. This is just the first sin. This is the sin of the garden. This is the same recycled lie that's never left the human heart since its fall. We want to be God. We don't trust him. We don't believe him. And we've embraced the truth of God for a lie that we can do his job better than he can. And our wisdom is sufficient for the task of binding and loosing eternal things. Satan calls on God to judge everyone according to the laws they deserve. He's called the accuser in the Bible. And whether unknowingly or not, some humans join him in that task. For, for most of us in the developed West, I imagine, we're more inclined to lean the other direction in the sense that we're more drawn to calling God to withhold all judgment. Don't judge everybody, God. Instead, judge nobody. Leave the sword unsheathed. Leave man and his heart right where it is and right where we want it to be in sin. Kings proud and unbowed in the crumbling and diseased corners of our own minds. We want to ask God, God, let blood be spilled and forever unanswered. We ask God to sacrifice his perfect sense of justice to placate our own irrevocably twisted sense of the same. In whichever route we're drawn to taking, the story ends the same way with nobody reconciled to God. In the end, while Satan may formally advocate the one strategy, the fact is, is that he's behind both. When, when we take either of these routes, when we insist God not judge, or when we insist he judge all and make no distinction, no man or woman is ever healed or set right as they were always meant to be. Both of these roads end in hell. You're, you're an immortal whether you want to be or not. God made you glorious. May I just say that? And when by sin we, we darkened and twisted ourselves, we, we started down a path that just because of what we are, because of what God made us to be, it will necessarily go on forever. So what are the options? God righteously judges all for their sin and they're sent to hell. Okay, that's simple. It's straightforward. It would be fair. Or God judges none and we go on as ourselves forever. Selfish cruel, complaining, forever dissatisfied, an unchanged, unreformed, unregenerate you going on for eternity. And, and I'm stealing from C.S. Lewis a little bit here, but I think he makes the point compellingly that whether or not God judges you, whether or not he sends you to a bad place where the thermostat's always too high, 
whether or not that happens, there are things in you that will be hell in a million years. God loves us and he doesn't begrudge us our questions and our cries to him. Uh, when, when his life fell apart, Job, from the Bible, he cried out to God. He said, God, what's going on here? Um, what are you doing? And, and the Bible actually takes great pains to say, Job didn't sin when he did that. Um, and as we think of people we know and love who are lost, our hearts can cry out to God. He, he's big enough to take our questions. Um, and, but the questions we ask also reveal something about us, about where our affections stand. And sometimes we ask these questions because a part of us, however small, still finds its primary affections, our natural sympathies, lying with sinners in open rebellion to God rather than with God himself. This, this story, like all of the, the Old Testament, is instructive in who God is and is preparing the people of God and us for Jesus. And it's in Jesus that we find God's answer to these cries, to these questions we have. We, we, we find God's answer to that terrible cry that went up over Egypt the morning after the tenth and final plague. In the Gospels, we see Jesus telling people exactly what this story tells us. He speaks of hell and judgment, and he pulls no punches while doing so. He also speaks of forgiveness and redemption. He speaks of the distinction God makes and how it comes to people we think would never accept or ne and never deserve it. He, he speaks of the upside-down, inside-out, backwards nature of the kingdom that defies our sense of fair. He tells people that whatever their sense of accomplishment or, or spiritual pedigree, that they have to start over, that they need to be born again. He speaks of the offense of grace. And, and, and I hope you can piece together, this is why we read Matthew 20, the, the parable of the vineyard workers. We want the kingdom of heaven to be fair, and in so doing, we begrudge the master his mercy. And, and to, to paraphrase something Jesus says in Matthew 7 about false teachers, um, we want God not to judge. We demand that the vineyard owner not tear down diseased vines that only bear poisoned fruit. We say, no, God, don't, don't leave those up forever, and in so doing, deny creation for all eternity the opportunity to ever again experience justice or wholeness or peace. In a lot of ways, the doctrine of hell isn't a theological proposition so much as it is a question. What should God do? Should he offer humanity forgiveness? Should he offer them a fresh start? Should he promise to restore and remake any and all who would come and be healed? Well, he did that. He did that on the hill outside the gates of Jerusalem. Mark tells the story of the death of Jesus this way. Uh, Mark 15, 33 to 39. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemasak bathani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. If, if, 
If you think judgment too cruel, know that Jesus himself suffered all the pain, all the deprivation, all the, the wrath that the children of men ever have and ever will face. In death, he suffered complete isolation and alienation from God, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, and if you think grace is too cheap, know that this same Jesus stood for us on the burning and heartbreaking side of that distinction God makes so that all who would might enter in and receive that mercy. And it was with no less a great cry than any human has ever made that Jesus gave up his life to save the world. And so by that judgment, by that gracious distinction, bought and paid for through that judgment, the curtain in the temple, the dividing line between the presence of a holy God and wretched, sinful, lost humanity is broken asunder. And by that, we are saved. So the question becomes, how will we respond to that information, that good news, that gospel? If we believe, if we do stand saved in Christ by distinction, by his judgment in our place, I pray that this word will both comfort and convict us as needed based off where our affections lie. If our hearts demand an accounting from God and veto power over who will and will not enter the kingdom of heaven, may we be humbled by the cross. May we remember Job 40 and uh, Romans uh, 9 and 10. If you struggle with this, read those. It helped me uh, spend some time in those parts of sacred scripture. And uh, as the, the great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon once said, uh, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. And if hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. And if we do not yet believe, if, if we struggle with bowing to the judgment and distinction of this God we encounter in the Bible, if our belief in this God is being hindered by a concern that the gates of heaven are thrown wide too readily, or anger that God doesn't wait on the road to hell in ambush and, and attack anyone who would walk that road willingly and drag them kicking and screaming back to heaven, may we be humbled by the cross. May we remember that when the disciples asked Jesus, uh, would, would many enter the kingdom of heaven? Jesus' reply was, strive to be one of those who do. When people, when, when, when terrible things happened, some tower fell on these people, they asked Jesus, Jesus, did this happen to them because they were worse sinners than everybody? And he said, no. But so too will you perish unless you repent. Will we refuse God's offer of mercy in the, the insane hope that somehow that will prove that he is not merciful. So my, my beloved and fellow sinners, I, I would urge you, come and be reconciled to God based off of wherever you are in your life, in your walk with him, whether you are, are far or, or near, I encourage you to be remade and reborn in the fire of judgment and mercy that Christ has born willingly and with great joy for you individually and for all of us as a church. May we together and with all God's people bow before the God who has liberated us from our great and complete and eternal enslavement to sin and death. And may we be ashamed of nothing, neither his judgment nor his mercy, but instead treasure deeply those things
which are the very instruments of our salvation. Amen. Oh, Lord God, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.